are so close to being able to feel like we're winning. Um, and it requires eight weeks more of masking and distancing and limiting who we encounter in our travel. It, 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 it's, it's maybe even four more weeks. Uh, if we can maintain that sort of cohesion as a society, uh, that, that sort of cooperative effort, uh, I think we're going to have this thing under control. Uh, either way, I, I think in the summer we'll start to see you know, real visible signs. From the digital journalists at WGRP.com, this is Uncovered, a behind-the-scenes look at stories affecting education, business, criminal justice, and more in Louisville, Kentucky. And now for the show. This is Chris Otts of WDRB.com. For today's show, I sat down with Dr. John Klein of the University of Louisville. He's one of the most knowledgeable experts locally on the pandemic. He's followed it from the beginning, doing weekly updates with Mayor Fisher. So I thought it was a good time to take stock of where we are locally and nationally in the pandemic. How close is that light at the end of the tunnel? Here's my conversation with Dr. Klein. Well, Dr. John Klein, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's good to be here. I want to first start with your background and how you became such a fixture over the last year, providing information about the pandemic to our community. You are the vice dean of research at the medical school at UofL. You have a PhD in addition to an MD, uh, but your specialty is as a kidney doctor. So what got you interested in keeping such a close eye on COVID-19. How did that come about? I think it's a couple things. I, as the vice dean for research, I was involved really from the very first day of the pandemic in, in the university. And so that brought me into contact with the people who were doing COVID and coronavirus research. It turns out that we we actually have uh, a, a pretty good group of people who had been studying dangerous viruses, including coronaviruses, before this all started. And so trying to keep them up and running in the middle of shutting down of a lot of the university's functions brought me into contact with them. So I became familiar with their work. As you say, I have a background uh, in immunology and microbiology from my PhD. And then finally, something I've, I've really enjoyed really my entire career is, is explaining science and medicine to people in, in, in clear English so that they can understand it and they can make their own judgments about it. And so I think that's, that's what started this. And, and to a great extent, that's, that's what's driven my enthusiasm for it. 
Well, fantastic. As a as schmo with a bachelor's in journalism, I'm going to give you plenty of opportunities to, to do that over uh, the course of, of this conversation. So to, to set the stage, we are speaking on Monday, April 5th, and um, you know the vaccine continues to roll out, and it seems like it's really making a big difference in the COVID situation nationally and locally. Kentucky, uh, 1.4 million people have had at least a first dose, 1.8 million in Indiana, uh, 260,000 people in Jefferson County. As of today, cases have been declining for the last 12 weeks or so. Hospitalizations, I listened to your thing on Saturday with the mayor, uh, are, there were about 400 in Louisville in December, now down to about 80 or less as of the last check-in. And as of today in Kentucky, anyone 16 and over can get the shot. Indiana moved to 16 and over last week. And by the time anyone is listening to this podcast, Indiana will have done away with its statewide mask mandate. On your latest update with Mayor Fisher, he said, We are close to the finish line with this disease, and we are rapidly moving to herd immunity. Uh, Do you share that assessment? Well, we're rapidly moving towards it. Uh, The the question that the mayor didn't answer on Saturday, and I didn't answer, is is how close we really are to it. Uh, but, But we're doing the right things. We're moving in that direction. And we're doing it rapidly. And in fact, it's accelerating. You know, over the last three weeks nationally, uh, we've seen an increase in, in the average of vaccines that are given and, 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 and really a, a rapid increase. You know, uh, back in the third week of January, uh, we were vaccinating nationwide about 850 to 870,000 people daily. Our seven-day average is now three million people per day, and we've hit the four million per day mark a couple times uh, in the last four or five days. So, so clearly, it's accelerating. Uh, the the question is, when will we get to the point where we can expect herd immunity, and and let's let's try and define a little bit of what that is. We we were we were told originally, and and most people. Uh, began to think in terms of, well, if, if we take the number of people who have had the virus and then we add it to the number of people uh, who have received the vaccine, if, if that gets to 75 percent, we're, we're going to reach herd immunity. Um, I think that's still the working you know, assumption, you know, what people think is going to happen. But one of the things that, that I'm concerned about is that the natural immunity after the infection may not be able to handle these variants that we're seeing from around the world and also developing within our own country. So I'm going to say when we get to 75% of the country fully vaccinated, I'm going to be confident that that we'll have herd immunity. And that'll be sometime the end of June to the end of July in, in the United States. Does herd immunity mean we've eradicated COVID-19 and it's gone, what, what does it mean? No, it, it, it simply means that, that, that we have so many people, such a high percentage of the population has vaccine-stimulated immunity that there are fewer and fewer places 
for the virus to go to infect people and, and to reproduce, to replicate. And, and ultimately, that's what viruses do everything in their power to do is to replicate. Once we crowd out that ability with immunization, that, that's, that's really what herd immunity means. Can you crowd it totally out? Can you completely eliminate it from, from any what we call reservoir of infection? The answer is no, probably not. We're never going to reach that point is, is the prevailing opinion uh, from the, the virologists that, you know, that I follow and listen to. Uh, but we'll get it to a point where the infections are manageable because they're so few in number and, and presumably uh, barring some disastrous mutation or variant of the virus, it, it will be easily managed medically as well. So let's talk about what the what the future might hold. Uh, you mentioned uh, the variants of COVID nineteen that are spreading around the world, and uh, I believe uh, you said over the weekend that we, we know that one of them is is here in in Jefferson County. But I'm curious: um, are the vaccines effective against these variants, or is there just not enough evidence to tell? And also, can we expect? this to be like the flu shot moving forward where you have to get a new COVID vaccine every year and it's always something that we're going to be living with? I'll take the second question first. I, I, I think that, that the virus is going to be with us going into the future. I, I don't know if we're going to need an annual booster shot or an annual update, uh, but I think periodically we're going to need some type of, of, of update. Uh, I, I think that that's likely. It's not a certainty. Uh, every time you think you've got this virus figured out, it, it, it does something that humbles you. Uh, but I think that's what we should look forward to is, is, is additional shots uh, over the years. Um, the, the good news and answer to the first question is that the vaccines that we have are, are highly effective uh, against the variants that, that are circulating. Uh, the one that we have that's shown up in, in Jefferson County is the one that originally was, was detected in, in Great Britain. Some people call it the British variant or the English variant. Uh, it, has a, it has an identifier, you know, scientists love jargon. And so it's the B117 variant. Uh, so what do I mean by the fact that, that the vaccine is effective? What, what I mean is that it's effective at preventing serious illness and death. And we know that not only from the clinical trials, but now we have more and more what, what epidemiologists like to call real world experience or real world studies. And that simply means if a country has implemented a large scale vaccine study, just as we have, and then really sort of the poster child for, for most of these studies of real world experiences is in the state of Israel, where, where they've vaccinated fully over half of the population uh, or approaching that. Uh, what we can do is see, okay, well, do they have the variant? And, and in Israel, yes, B117 is the, the, the predominant variant of, of, of the virus. And is the vaccine working in that population? Well, it is. So, so we have now 
some very practical real world experience that the vaccines are going to work against that variant. We have some additional information that it works against uh, the so-called South African variant. Uh, and, and we were waiting to hear how well it works against a Brazilian variant, so-called P or P1 variant. Uh, so far, though, the, every variant that comes along, the vaccine is, is, is still just knocking it down. So um, I, I think based on what we know today, I'm feeling pretty good about how the vaccines will perform uh, against the variants. So you said it's uncertain at this point whether we would need to get like an annual COVID shot similar to how we get a flu shot. What do we know about how long the vaccine-induced immunity lasts? And could you um, foresee it making sense from a medical perspective that I may need to have the exact same vaccine I had last year, uh, 12 months later to like re-stimulate that immunity. This is one of those great opportunities for people in science and medicine to say, we don't know. Um, and, and what we do know is we're about, oh, six months into uh, people who received the Pfizer vaccine in the, in the clinical trial, in the clinical testing, and, and so we can measure their antibodies. Uh, my wife and I fit that category. We, we were in the Pfizer trial. Uh, and uh, actually, I think tomorrow I go to get my blood drawn and they'll check my antibody levels. What we know is that people who received their second dose six months ago still have good antibody levels. That doesn't really tell us how long it'll last. And, 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 and so it's really going to be sort of a, a we'll see kind of situation. We'll keep getting tested. We'll keep having studies for antibodies. Uh, but I think a couple things that I, I want to caution people about. If you see a news article that says, oh, at eight months, antibody levels are falling, don't, don't, don't get too rattled. Uh, one of the things that's great and, and truly fantastic about the, our immune systems, our, our systems that protect us from infections, is that they have a memory cell. And so there are cells that, that store the memory, just, just like the hard drive on a computer. And when you're exposed to that virus or bacteria, again, that memory cell comes to life and is capable of kicking out antibody. So if the original stimulation was the vaccine and it's starting to, to just sort of decrease in the, in the response, it doesn't mean that we're going to lose all of our protection. That's going to be another wait and see event where we'll wait to see if people who had falling antibodies when they're exposed to the virus, if they make more antibody. Uh, generally, not generally, uh, really consistently, if you've got those memory cells, you're going to respond to, to, to the subsequent exposure to the virus. So it's going to take a while for us to, to be able to say if the antibody levels are falling, and then it's going to take even more time if the antibody levels are falling, if we can answer the question of, well, can we mount a subsequent response to exposure to the virus? So you mentioned that you were in the Pfizer clinical trial. So if I understand it right, these trials are still, people are still being monitored so that the long-term study of, of these vaccines 
uh, continues and we continue to learn about their effectiveness to answer these questions like how long do they last and, and do you need to get another one, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we, we not only go periodically to have blood drawn, but uh, there are other studies that we're not a part of where, where you're being tested for the presence of the virus because they want to know if their uh, vaccine is preventing asymptomatic infections and, and spreading. Um, and then uh, we have a, a little app on our phones where every week we fill out a, a, a short survey that, that's to screen us for symptoms of COVID. So, so there's a lot of work that's being done on the people who are in each of the trials or the studies, the Pfizer, the Moderna, uh, as well as the, the Johnson & Johnson. I've done a little reading up on the, the vaccines, and I know that the Pfizer and Moderna are the, this new technology called mRNA. Uh, I don't know if I really want to delve into the details of why that's different and how it works, but I am curious, is there reason to believe that if there is an infectious variant that is resistant to the vaccines we have, that that technology can just sort of be reprogrammed like a, like a plug and play and come up with a new shot very quickly um, to, to take care of any variants that may become problems? I think that's a good way to put it. The, the mRNA technology is, is more plug and play. You can, you can create a, a new vaccine much more quickly than the, the older methods. Uh, you know, you think back to the, to, to the, uh, the polio vaccine, it was made in eggs. Uh, it took weeks and months uh, to, to get the antibody uh, reaction um, and, and, and the production of the actual vaccine itself, then it had to be purified. This is a more direct route uh, to producing a vaccine. So yes, it, we, it's much more suitable for changing the vaccine for variants uh, than, than the older and, and, and more um, traditional ways of, of making vaccines. I want to briefly touch on the subject of vaccine hesitancy. I know uh, people in the medical establishment have been trying to get as many people as possible to get this vaccines or these vaccines. Um, they've been very bullish on the effectiveness of the vaccines, and it's really, quite frankly, a medical miracle that we're able to have them so quickly. But just to play devil's advocate for a second, um, do you... Um, can you understand where people might be coming from noting that we did rush these vaccines to approval without the long time, time horizon of clinical trials that would normally uh, be the case? Is it possible that there's something that we still don't know about them because of the truncated time frame here, and thus maybe it might be reasonable for people to sit on the sidelines and say, "I'm not sure I necessarily want to put that in my body at this point." I think I understand. I I hope I do. I I think I understand some of the the hesitancy, um, and 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 there's no one explanation for hesitancy. It depends a great deal. 
uh, on on who you are, where you live, uh, what what you know, what what's your background. Uh, but but you know, if you try to put yourself in the place of people who are who are honestly hesitant, well, let's set aside for the moment people who are against vaccines of all type, and and who have done their very best to sort of muddy the waters of the conversation. Let's set them aside and let's just think about people who are sincerely hesitant. Uh, first of all, this is a new disease, and I, I don't think you can you can minimize that. This is something that came out of nowhere. If you go back to, to what my parents were thinking about in the 1950s uh, with their children getting the, the polio vaccine, well, polio had been around for, for many years. They'd seen it come and go primarily every summer. Uh, they knew what it was capable of doing. Uh, they, they knew what was going to happen if, if there wasn't something that was protective. And so I, I think in some ways uh, it was a different era, but, but people were more willing to accept a polio vaccine because they were familiar with the disease. Here this disease comes you know, to us from, from China by way of Europe, um, and, and there's nothing, there's no precedent. So, so that's the first thing that, that I think you have to recognize when you talk to people about um, about about their hesitancy or their skepticism. The second thing is you have to recognize that, uh, that uh, there are uh, uh, historical reasons that many people are, are vaccine hesitant or skeptical. Um, in, in the Black or African American community in the United States, uh, th there's a great deal of mistrust of, of medicine, uh, and, and justifiably so. If you look at, uh, and, and we, we know the historical events, we, we know that the Tuskegee experiment uh, basically introduced uh, untreated syphilis into black men just to, to observe the natural history of the disease. Uh, if we look at, at the story of, uh, of, of, you know, the, 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 the taking of, of cells from, from, from Henrietta Lacks, uh, th these are things that, that happened within the black community that, that, that justifiably have made them very skeptical. If you put on top of that the, the inequity of access to health care, I think that's a very understandable thing. That's a, that's a skepticism that I think is changing very quickly uh, in, in the United States, thanks to uh, leadership in, in, in the black community. Um, Particularly among ministers and, and public, uh, uh, oh, you know, people who are who are prominent individuals um, in the arts and and, and in medicine. Um, then you've got a, a whole group of people who simply are are deeply distrustful of science, and and in some ways, you know, science has done a, a pretty lousy job of explaining itself to people. Uh, so uh, I'm not particularly surprised, but but what I've also seen is that when when people sit and speak to uh, folks who are skeptical about science in general, that they they will change their minds. Uh, the the former head of the CDC, Tom Frieden, uh, did a focus group recently with with people who were uh, very very skeptical, and he simply answered their questions without 
making it into a political or an ethnic issue. And, and after the focus group was completed, a large number of them said they were now open to, to getting the, the vaccine. So I think we're making tremendous progress with vaccine skepticism and hesitancy. I think we have a, a, a lot of work left to do. But, but truthfully, a lot of this just involves listening to people's concerns and answering their questions, just like family doctors have done for a long, long time. So I think it's something that we have a skill set that can that can address the you know the hesitancy, and we just need to continue to do what we're doing because the the situation is improving substantially. Well, here comes a pretty naive question from a non-scientist. When we say that these vaccines, I think Pfizer and Moderna are ninety four, ninety five percent effective. What I, I'm curious about there is. What happened in the other five or six percent of instances? And the reason I ask that is just thinking through it, if there's a causal mechanism here, you inject this thing, it stimulates uh, the antibodies ultimately through the through the process that we have developed. How do we explain that for some people it just doesn't work? Mm. I tell you what, you, you, you've, a, you've asked one of the most important questions from the clinical, the clinical studies. So, so the first thing you do is to make sure we're using, you know, sort of the same terminology. And that's very difficult because the Pfizer study was done during a different time period uh, than, say, the Johnson & Johnson study. Uh, and, and so the sort of the contours or the shape of the pandemic uh, changed uh, during that period of time from Pfizer study to Johnson and Johnson study. So what we know from the, the Pfizer study is that, is that it was conducted almost overwhelmingly uh, against the form of the virus or the strain of the virus that, that, that originally came to the United States. Uh, by the time Johnson and Johnson was in the middle of its trials, variants had begun to emerge. So trying to compare those results is, is a little uh, treacherous and, and really not the right thing to do. So Johnson and rather Moderna and Pfizer were 94% effective against even all symptomatic disease. And they were 100% effective against death and, and hospitalization. Uh, in those small studies. Uh, and 30,000 is actually still a very small study. Um, why did five to 6% fail? That's something that's currently under study now. Uh, I think, you know, all, all humankind exists in my, in my estimation as a bell-shaped curve and there are variations at either end of the bell-shaped curve. And there may simply be people who do not respond uh, to that form of vaccine, and that may be four, five, six percent. That said, that is an amazing effectiveness or efficacy uh, for any vaccine. Most vaccines can't achieve that, and we know the flu vaccine. Uh, some years, it's as low as forty percent of effective. So, so what we really ought to then do, if we're going to compare the effectiveness across the span of time in which the virus began to have variants 
is to look at a, a common sort of endpoint, a common result. And, and the one that I think most people use now is, is uh, hospitalization and death. And all of these vaccines have a near 100% efficacy to prevent hospitalization and death, uh, which, which tells us that we are eventually going to get past this thing. As a parent of uh, two young girls, I have really, and my wife and I have really struggled over this last year with how much um, to let them do. We know they need socialization. They need contact. They have been in daycare since September of last year. But this is something that we've really struggled with, uh, You know, trying to be responsible regarding COVID and also having our kids have, have, have a life and, and, you know, the interaction that they need and not just, you know, being in front of the TV or stuck at, at home. What do we know a year later about how much children spread the virus and how big a risk that is? And then secondarily, when would you expect children to be getting the vaccines, if at all? Well, the, uh the people of Pfizer are going to submit an emergency use authorization in the next few weeks for the next age group. So uh, the original study was 16 and above, the, the study that I was in. They have now completed uh, a study of uh, adolescents in the 12 to 16 age group. The results are outstanding. And in fact, the antibody responses are better than in the adults. Um, and so you can expect that it will be approved sometime in the next two months, uh, or at least authorized by the FDA in the next two months. Uh, and then we can begin uh, immunization of 12 to 16 year olds. They are beginning a study that will eventually go down to six months of age. Uh, and I, I would expect that it's going to be effective. I think it's going to be an important study because one of the, the disturbing developments in the last several weeks is that the variants that we're seeing in the United States do appear to cause younger people to get sicker, and they are apparently more easily spread in general, but also more easily spread by children. So I, I think these studies in the under 12 age group of Pfizer and Moderna will launch one as well, uh, are going to be actually very important to us to, to ending the pandemic in the United States. Let's, let's stay on the discussion uh, about children. I hadn't heard what you were just talking about regarding uh, some kids getting very sick. In fact, you don't hear about kids getting very sick from COVID hardly at all. So, you know, just what is your best general advice as to um, the the risk? And I'm talking about, I guess I'm talking about young children. Maybe I'm being self-interested here, but say uh, to children under 12, the risk of their socializing uh, without a mask or going to school or, or being in daycare and getting, getting sick? Well, I have a grandson and oh, by the way, we, we raised two daughters too. And so uh -huh. good luck. <laughs> uh, 
No, actually, it was a pleasure. It still is. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the real concern uh, that I have for my grandson, who's 18 months, uh, and who's actually had COVID already, um, and did and did well with it. He's back. He's back in in preschool. Um, is it you know really my concerns the variants? Uh, the, the, there, I, I think is is increasing concern and worry about how these are affecting uh, children, and and so uh, I you know there's been this sort of very serious discussion going on about, well, you know, can you really expect children two years and above to mask? And, and the answer is, if you go to Asia, you can see that, that it's, it's accomplishable there. You can do it. Uh, I, I think that we're going to head into the next eight weeks, maybe 12, unfortunately, uh, where, uh, s- the sort of mitigation efforts, the masking, the social distancing, uh, those sort of things in children are going to be actually very important. Um, there, there's evidence from the states that are flaring. Michigan uh, is, is sort of the poster child uh, for a current flare uh, where the ill, the, 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 the sickest people uh, are younger and younger, and there are more and more children beginning to show up w- with typical COVID. So I think it's actually going to be an important thing to, to, to try and teach children and young children, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the necessity of, of masking and, and distancing and, and hand washing. Well, you can teach my two and a half year old to to keep her mask on. I, I will. Uh, <laughs> I'll, have, I'll be uh, grateful if you could if you could do that. I mean, you know, I didn't I, say I, it was going to be easy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think there's probably a line. You know, maybe four or five years old around the time of kindergarten. It's 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 you know more more doable. I think. Um, you know, it's one thing to get them to put put it on. It's another thing to get them to wear it right and, oh, and, I agree. and to keep and to keep it on. Um, do you expect that children in Jefferson County will be back to school uh, as normal in the fall? I know you're not a policymaker. I know you're not on the school board. Uh, but would you think that that would be a medically defensible um, uh, result? You know, I'm, uh, the, you know, sheer speculation on my part, but I'm, I'm also generally an optimist about where will be Labor Day thereabouts. I, I think you know, barring, once again, I, you know, I've got to leave myself a little bit of an escape hatch here. Barring a disastrous variant rising up, uh, I think that, you know, by Labor Day, uh, the world will look very, very different. In fact, I, I'm looking forward to, to, to really, you know, good summer. I think we're going to be able to, to, to not get completely back to normal around July 4th, but I, I think uh, a lot of things will be returning to normal uh, by then. Uh, I, I, it's just, it's truthfully the next eight to 12 weeks that, you know, that wake me up in the middle of the night, uh, because I think we're, we're going to have a period of time where things are, 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 are going to get worse. How worse is the big question? And even there, I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think that, you know, this is, 
it's become a cliche. I, you know, I repeat it so much, but, but this is a foot race between the rate that we're vaccinating people and, and the spread of the, the variants. Uh, and we're doing, we're doing pretty well. I mean, 4 million people a day, and I think we can sustain 4 million per day. Uh, that's a, more than one out of every 60 people in the whole country is getting a vaccine in a single day. I mean, this is a tremendous accomplishment. And I think it's going to get us to a point where we begin to see the leading edge of herd immunity sometime in June. And by that, I mean that herd immunity is is not an on-off switch. We'll begin to see early positive effects when we get to, say, 60% of the population. Things will begin to slow down some in a detectable way, I think, uh, when we get to 60 65%. When we get to that that seventy five percent, then we'll really begin to see some things happen. I really, I really think that we will see some very positive developments at that point. So yes, I think uh, uh, if 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 my guesswork, which is worth everything people pay for it, uh, if my <laughs> guesswork is 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 accurate, uh, then uh, I suspect that kids will be back in school in the fall. I certainly hope I'm right. I hope so too. I I know you. We've got to wrap up, but I, I did want to ask you about something you said there, uh, and maybe I missed this earlier. But why do you believe that there's a risk that things are going to get worse over the next twelve weeks? They've generally been getting better, and presumably more and more people are being vaccinated. So what what would change to make things worse? So only about I guess twenty percent of the country is fully vaccinated, if that. Um, and so it, it's, it's good not to get ahead of ourselves here. Uh, we, we are doing a great job of vaccinating people at a national and at a local level. Um, I, I think it's terrific. Uh, it is having some effect, but I, I think, and, and I'm not the only one, I think that most of the decline we're seeing right now is, is really the, the, the tapering off of that December, January peak that, Pandemics have this sort of natural history of, of, of tapering off after interventions. I think people were much more uh, consistent and intense about masking in January, and, and I think it had a, a very positive effect. There were a series of shutdowns that had a positive effect. So I think we're seeing that more than we are seeing the effect of the vaccine. There's this gap between those efforts which are truly slacking off now. If, if you watch the, the news from, uh, from the spring break location. So that intense mitigation effort is slacking off and we still have only 20, 25% at most uh, fully vaccinated by the end of this week. Uh, I, I think the virus is going to migrate into populations that are un- unvaccinated, and those are, you know, the under 60 population, including children. So that's a that's an unknown quantity. There's no predicting how that's going to, you know, change things. But based on our experience of the last 13 months, I think the most likely event is is to see another flare, another surge, and and that's what we're seeing. And you know, over. 32 of the states in, in the United States 
have rising counts. It's just that the other uh, remaining 18 states are populous enough and have falling counts that, that the overall average looks like things are still either falling or, or hitting a plateau. But, but there's a surge already starting in this country. And, and I think the next eight, 10, 12 weeks will tell us how severe that surge is. You know, in, in my wishful thinking moments, what I'm hoping for is that that uptick collides with this massive vaccination effort and simply levels out at a, at a high but, but manageable level of, of infection. Uh, but it's also possible that we could all end up like Michigan, where we're seeing, you know, really alarming increases in the, in the infections. So, so the issue you're saying is that the behavioral changes are the behavior is loosening to a faster rate than uh, than vaccines are proceeding, uh, and consequently, uh, this risks bringing the disease levels back up. So, I guess to give you a last word, you would say to everyone not to let their guard down. I think that's, you know, we, we are so close to being able to feel like we're winning. Um, and it requires eight weeks more of masking and distancing and limiting who we encounter and our travel. It, 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 it's, it's maybe even four more weeks. Uh, if we can maintain that sort of cohesion as a society, uh, that, that sort of cooperative effort, uh, I think we're going to have this thing under control. Uh, either way, I, I think in the summer we'll start to see, you know, real visible signs of, of improvement. It's just, I, I hate to put it this way, but what's the price that we'll pay in the next 8 to 12 weeks to get to a July... Where, where things are much, much better. Well, Dr. Klein, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for your diligence in sharing your expertise with the public over this last year of the pandemic. I really appreciate it. Are you welcome? It's a pleasure to be here. The Uncovered Podcast is a production of WDRB Media. Please subscribe, review, and rate wherever you get your podcasts.